hey, everyone, uh, it turns out that we can't read calendars. Nope. And uh, every time you hear the words March 29th in this episode, cross them cross out. Cross it out in your mind and replace it with March 31st, which, which is actually is a Sunday. Sunday, which is the day the podcast comes out. Yes, for season two. Thanks. Thanks. Sorry. We we're, can't read a calendar. We're neat. Go. Episode 12. Episode 12. Season finale. Woo! Trashy divorces. I don't have to stress about my story for one week. I Woo! can't. I, what a fun season this has been. It really, this has been so cool. And this podcast turned into something I did not expect it to be at all. I not just at all. We had a crazy idea. Thought we were going to have a little comedy show. And, and wow, has it gone in some directions. All of y'all whose earbuds this is going into. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we are so grateful. We are so thank excited. you for excited. Spending your time with us and giving us a chance and your amazing feedback and all the awesome things that you guys are saying about us and telling your friends about us and you freaking rock. We yep. love you. Yep, thank yep. you. For sure. Something else really cool happened this week. It did indeed. We received in our P.O. box a big fat box with our first art, our Whoa. first band thing. It was so cool. Like, yeah, you walked in with that box. I was like... What Wait, is what? That? So yeah, we got gifts from an artist. It was so, it they're beautiful too. So one of our favorite listeners, Kara Voorhees Reynolds, is a beautiful ink and watercolorist. And she makes these amazing constellation paintings, which she was kind enough to make one for each of our respective Gemini, you, mm-hmm. me, Leo signs, and we got them and we cried and we love them. It's true. I will post a picture of them on Insta yeah. and tag Kara. Her art is... We'll, we'll have it all over social. Ah, oh, her art is simply beautiful. And thank you, Kara, for the amazing, lovely gift. We really, really love them. Yes, we really, really do. Thank you so... It was such... I think you knew it was happening. Um, I did I, not. I had a little secret. And so well, I... she needed our first signs. Well, fair. Right. <laughs> I guess that would be a weird question otherwise. <laughs> so I kept it a surprise from you and it really was a it, it, it made, fun surprise. It made my week. Um, thank really, you, Kara. Yeah, thank you. You are simply the best and we're actually going to have to take the paintings that have been hung on the wall off of the wall in order to get them photographed to go out. Right. You rock. Thank you so much. This week, season 12. Alicia. Okay, for, hold on. Anybody who's panicking, oh my God, see, see, episode 12, they're done with their season. We're taking a week break. We're oh, back yeah. on March 29th, guys. Okay, here's the thing. We we are fundamentally fairly lazy people and we wanted to we wanted to create a structure that would allow us to build in some break time here and there. So we've got this like 12 episode season plan it it gives us it it works in a lot of ways but taking a week off is a very important thing for lazy people <laughs> so. yeah we really just need to clean the house like we're gonna call it straight you up you guys don't pretty even no <laughs> uh yeah our poor recycling yeah. people yeah. on a oh monday are really gonna oh have a hard god. time oh anyway not the point everybody take a deep breath we'll be we back come march 29. back season to march 29th and it is the lineup is lit. I, I'm so excited. I can't even stand it. So that stated. Sure. Stacy, this week was podcast. No rules. It was no rules. It was host choice. Uh, host I, choice. I have a story about a house. The. I mean, it's a it's a divorce story. Trashiest divorce house in the world. But it there there is this crazy address in New York City that just intersects our 
it really, universe of things. It was an amazing story. Re- in a really cool way. And anyway, I, I hope you guys like it. You really twisted that up yeah. this week. I'm covering. Right. I You've did the got, twist. Yeah, you I got. I did the twist. Uh, the trashiest non-divorce that ever happened where divorce would have been the kinder, better option. Yeah, I think you the, amply demonstrated that. Yeah. Uh, trashy non-divorce of Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald. Team Zelda. <laughs> I may have cried within the first 60 seconds of that, but managed but then to you hold stopped. it together yeah. for the rest. Oh, yeah. my ire for fuck off Scott Fitzgerald is unparalleled. As as the listener will soon hear. Oh, yeah, you're not kidding. Anyway, thanks everybody for tuning in. Yep. We got a lineup this week that's a little quirky. We sure. hope you like it. And uh, you ready to start the show? Totally. Let's do it. Let's bring garbage out. <laughs> Trash candy begin. Hi, Alicia. Hey, Stacy. How you doing this week? I'm great. Yeah? yeah, you've got a banger of a story, right? You you've been been on this one for 15 years. Ah. Story I was born to tell. Yeah. You ready? Listeners might want to know that we both grew up uh, at least a little bit in Alabama, I, and uh, so you're born you, and this raised. This is a, this is somebody you're you have a heart tied to. So you should um, funny funny you should say that the name of my story is Angel from Montgomery. Ah. Subtitled, F. Scott Fitzgerald, You Are a Misogynist, Alcoholic Prick Face. Wow. It's a powerful, compelling subtitle. Welcome to the story <laughs> of Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald. Yikes. The trashiest divorce that never was. Oh, interesting. Oh, right, because it's it's host choice for season It's finale. host choice. They okay. did not get divorced. So they did not. Okay, so this is a trashy non-divorce. This okay. is the trashiest non-divorce you've ever heard of. So let me. Cool. Let me get there. Some things as a listener to know before we begin. I am a Zelda fan. Oh, uh, yes. Team Zelda, right here, big time, 100%. You'll find in the world there are Team Zelda people and Team Scott people, and the two do not mix. Like, it is never a bipartisan (laughs) endeavor. So every scrap that has ever been written about her and by her in every art piece she painted in her home in Montgomery... The street she walked in Paris, Team Zelda. I may have even very lightly touched a piece of her art, sometime, somewhere, but I admit nothing. Maybe it's an obsession on my part, but we're not here to squabble. Our couple did enough of that. (sighs) If you are tuning in as a listener because you really like F. Scott Fitzgerald and think he's a swell dude, this might not be the podcast for you. Uh, yeah. I'm going to refer to him as Fuck Off Scott for oh. much of the story. Okay. So that's what the F is for? I have a... That's what the F is for. <laughs> Fuck off, Scott Fitzgerald. It's <laughs> exactly what the F is for. All right. I, I've got a crap ton of references on the website if you'd like to do further reading by a myriad of researchers. Like, this is the heaviest book list I think I've ever put on the website. Go there. Uh, it, <sighs> If you're Team Scott, let's talk. Change my mind. Send an email to TrashyDivorces.com. I really, on purpose, in prepping this story, watched a lot of Team Scott material just to try not to think the things I think. And I almost (laughs) gained sympathy. And then I poured a drink. And anyway, uh, Team Zelda, don't leave us a crappy review. Just email me and let's talk about it. Thank you. (laughs) 
All right. Leaving my good, obsessions and fears. Good looking out for the reviews there. Thanks. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> please don't, like, talk to me. I'm, I'm willing to have my mind changed. Let's have a dialogue. So, back to the story. Back to the story. In this situation, divorce really would have been kinder. So, to bring in the title of our episode, Divorce Song... It's off the Liz Fair album Exiling Guyville, and she's a certified badass. And I mean, ugh, badass. Exiling Guyville is one of, I think, the best albums of all time. And I'm going to quote a line from the song, which to me is the Zelda and Scott part of this in the song. <sighs> and the license said you had to stick around until I was dead. I can't even get through this part. Sorry. Um, and the license said you had to stick around until I was dead. But if you're tired of looking at my face, I guess I already am. Like, that's to, like, divorce me already. <sighs> I know. I'm so emotional about I, this. Yeah. I... This is a story I'm telling. Divorce would have allowed each of them a better opportunity, I think. Like, I felt Zelda's fingers bleed drawing his characters so he could see them, so he could write them. And I know how much she actually wrote that is credited to him. She is a daughter and a sister and a wife and a mother, but she was also a very talented dancer and painter and writer. And I'm a little pissed <sighs> that until Scott died, he crushed her. And by the time he died, she was pretty crushed and came back as much as she could but in her time on Earth, she gained entry and exit to seven of the most expensive and renowned mental institutions in the world hmm. through the last 18 years of her life. And the treatment that she was given was far worse than any illness she had. Uh, electric shock, experimental treatments, uh, a fuckload of drugs because he wanted to control her. He was tired of looking at her face and she was already dead. Ah. <sighs> He reads to me like a typical controller abuser, but you tell me as we go through it, divorce would have been the kinder option. Okay. So how, yeah, tell me how this happened. Okay. I'll give you a little astrology to set the stage. I rolled my eyes as I do. I saw, I saw. You didn't, you didn't escape me. Zelda, <laughs> born on July 24th, 1900, turn of the century is okay. a Leo girl. Cool. Fire! Which actually is a prevalent theme in her life, which is sad. Uh, Scott, born on September 24th, 1896, is technically a Libra. He's an air sign. A cool thing I learned when researching this, if you're born between the 19th of September and the 24th of September, you fall within this range of the Virgo-Libra cusp, which is known as the cusp of beauty. Individuals born in this time frame are ruled by both Mercury and Venus, the planet of communication, and the planet of love. Leo and a Libra are a powerful match together. They bring out the best in each other. They share a similar out outlook. They're kind of fascinated by each other. This is actually a pretty common Zodiac love match with lots of soulmate potential until you start mixing in all kinds of external factors that complicate what could be long-lasting love. I set you up for the question. Go ahead and ask me. What kind of factors? Ha-ha. <laughs> uh, a quart of gin at breakfast. A quart of gin at breakfast wow 30 beers a day wow with the quarter gin at breakfast shit um i <laughs> i mean i can pack some gin and beers but good lord we're drinkers baby yeah but we 
F. Scott is Whoa. in a league of his own. There is a Whoa. lot of alcohol abuse in this story. Okay. With some sad and tragic consequences. Sure. sure. All right. Stage set. Okay. You really ready to hear about my Trashy D couple of the week? Don't say Trashy D. I love Trashy D. Phrasing. Okay. You ready? <laughs> yes. Okay. I think all my tears are wiped away. All right. I think I can do this. All right. Zelda Sayer was born in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Her father... Anthony Dickinson Sayre worked as a lawyer, a representative in the Alabama State Legislature, a state senator, a city judge, a justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama. Wow. He is so I mean, accomplished, so powerful. No, he is K-O-A-B-D. He mm-hmm. is kind of a big deal in Alabama politics. Okay. Additionally, both Zelda's great uncle and her grandfather served in the U.S. Senate. Wow. Okay. Like, <laughs> her father is described as unshakable. But let's not get too many high airs about him. He did author the Sayre election law, which prohibited blacks from voting in Alabama until the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. Yeah, seems right. So, like, not, not right as in correct. It no, just, just seems right for, factual. for yeah. powerful white people at the time. The Sayre election law, named after him. Great. Like, that's Great. a shit legacy. Mm-hmm. So, like Margaret Mitchell... Zelda born in the same year. They're living at the same time, but Zelda is really in the cradle of the Confederacy in sure. Montgomery. It was mm-hmm. the capital of the Confederacy. Like these people don't know they've lost. And she grows up in this very um yeah, weird southern culture world. She has an extravagant mother who did earlier in her life have ambitions of being an actress when she was young, but her political relatives, her dad and the like no, you're not going to do that. You're going to get married and be a sensible grown-up lady. Ah, Zelda has a few older siblings, uh, all sisters and one brother. She's the baby of the family. She's born really late in her mother's life. She's kind of the surprise baby. She's called baby her whole life. Uh, she is Southern royalty and grows up in this special little baby bubble She's named after a character in a gypsy book. She's doted and loved upon by her mother and her siblings, and I guess her dad to the extent that he's capable of that. Can I slide in a joke? Of course. Did anyone ever put her in the corner? Uh, <laughs> uh, Scott did. Well, Scott tried. All right. Scott so, tried. So somebody he, somebody does put baby in a corner. Somebody put baby in the corner. So Scott is an Irish Catholic boy from St. Paul, Minnesota. His dad is dapper. Edward's got fancy clothes, but he's crap at business. His mom is the enforcer. She comes from an affluent family. They have the worst house on the best block. Okay, yeah. Right? They're like, she's got some family money, so they're able to pretend they've got it, Mm -hmm. but they don't really have it. Right. Um, Worst house on the best block. She borrows enough money to send Scott to the best schools, but he's the poorer kid with kids who are... Lots of money and privilege, right. which influences his writing on a lot of levels. I right? can imagine. Like he's yeah. always the outside guy looking in on that right. story. In 1908, when Scott's like 15, his dad is fired, goes to work one morning, fired from a sales job, comes home and is a failure for the rest of his life, leaving it on mom. Great. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but during families. these years, uh-huh. Scott figures out he can write. And here, really, I do have something nice to say. He is lousy with talent, I guess. He's a really talented writer. He's going to steal a lot from Zelda, and he has weird ways of getting it. But his perseverance is extraordinary. 
he will write and rewrite multiple drafts because he wants to get every word right. And as a writer, I can really respect that. It is sad that he never really gets to become a success for his writing in his lifetime. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, he he was very successful in the 20s, but the great American novelist that he wanted to be known for didn't happen. Great Gatsby didn't really cycle until after his death. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it sold wellish at the time. Right, right. I mean, he was definitely it was a, a big deal. Published novelist in his own time. Not the big but, deal that okay, he dreamed but, but of. But the legend comes later. Exactly. Okay. I mean, he has seen his dad fall flat, and Scott makes up his mind not to be a failure, and he knows what he's really good at doing. So his writing is a way to gain some control. He's good at it, and it begins, and his psychosis fucking starts. (laughs) He starts with stories in the school paper. Then he writes plays. Of course, he's always taking the starring role, but this is like big magic for him. He writes the script. And his friends follow it? Right. Control. Yeah, that is kind of magical. Okay. If I did a search, the word control is going to come up about 97 times in this story. Okay. In 1913, he's accepted to Princeton. He has elaborate fantasies of being a BMOC, like big man on campus. He tries out for the football team. He's like 5'8 and a little femi. Like, it's not going to happen. He's cut the first day. Well, let me yeah. interrupt because I happen to know that football was sort of invented around that time and they didn't have any protective gear. And like the first couple decades of college football, like a bunch of people died. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> it is so bizarre that that sport ever took off. Right. Because like a bunch of Harvard men died playing football. What team football. do you play for? Death. Death <laughs> is the team that I play for. <laughs> Anyway, he is not going to be successful okay. in an athletic career. All right, so football is not for him. <laughs> <laughs> that dream is not going to happen. So he instead writes for a literary magazine. He joins the Triangle Club. Now, at the time, Princeton was all men. Oh, okay. So that anytime a sense. female role needed, there was a lot of drag. Mm-hmm. So here's the other nice thing I'll say about Scott Fitzgerald is he looks fantastic in drag. Okay. He's really pretty. I am not turning pro Scott, just doing my best. Sure. Say whatever nice things I can. Sure. Team Zelda. Okay. Okay. His drinking starts to be a problem here. He's spending more time writing than he is studying. He ends up on academic probation. He is a daily diarist, like from the time he's a child. Letters. All the letters. Remember that. Okay. Yeah, so many letters. Check the website. Like, there's a good book in there of all his collected letters. They're not good. And here's the weird thing about his control thing. When he's losing control, he will start to control others about what he feels out of control about personally. So this is a pattern you're going to see. It starts here. He has so much control that he writes his younger sister, Annabelle, with a letter about how to diminish herself and get a man. Like, seriously, (laughs) it's scathing. Like, these are the things you do wrong, and these are the things you should do better, and no man has ever, like, oh my giving God. her, like, what the fuck, dude? Get off my ass. Wow. I mean, had she requested advice no. on? Oh. No, he loved to give unsolicited advice and Just re-educate females. Volunteer. what wow. he, yeah. Wow. So he's, he's, a, he's a well, actually guy. Fuck off, Scott Fitzgerald. From back in the day. So Scott. Well, actually. In his sophomore year at Princeton, uh-huh. meets 16-year-old Top Girl, 
Ginevra King. They date for a time. She is uber wealthy. She is beautiful. She's uber wealthy. They exchange love letters until he gets pulled aside by dad and says, sorry, Scott, you're entirely unsuitable. Rich girls don't marry poor boys. Whoa. Yep. (laughs) So here's the theme again. The outside looking in. Uh Uh-huh. He keeps for the rest of his life all the letters she wrote him. Oh, wow. And this is through multiple worldwide moves Mm -hmm. where stuff does not always come and go. And Zelda sets a lot of it on fire. Okay. Anyway. Spoilers. <laughs> Ginevra is his original golden girl fantasy. And all, like she's the girl every boy wanted but could never possess. So put a pin in it because this dream is just going to simmer until Zelda. But I need to catch you up on like three sentences for three years to get you to the entrance of our angel from Montgomery. Scott withdraws from Princeton in his junior year. He's doing badly. He has flunked out of school, failed at love. But... What else is happening in 1917? World War One. The U.S. enters World War One. Exactly. So he heads off to boot camp. In June of 1918, Second Lieutenant Fitzgerald reports to Camp Sheridan in Montgomery, Alabama. Ah. He attends a dance as a stationed military man. And because it's Montgomery, they've pulled out every bell, tall, short. Oh, yeah. Skinny, plump. Put some lipstick on him and said, go entertain the servicemen. Right. And this scene, because uh, Netflix did a Z or something. I forget yeah. the name of it. But uh, it, as far as I know, it only had one episode. But um, I think they ended up with a season. I think they did a okay. launch. I saw, the, the, I saw the first episode. Uh, and it, 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 yeah, it includes a, a portrayal of, of this event. So she is. Scott's a cute redhead in that, I think. <laughs> Um, they're actually both not. I'll get there. Okay. So he attends the dance. Zelda's dancing at the dance. She's a very talented dancer. Like she's got a, she's awesome. Everything inside him is lit up and on fire. Air sign just exploded. Okay. 17 year old Zelda at this point has got it. Like Anne fucking Boleyn. She is one of the most sought after bells in the South. She is K-O-A-B-D. There's a fraternity at Auburn University called Zeta Sigma that is only them that if you were lucky enough to actually land a date with her, you got in the fraternity. There's a whole fraternity, War Eagle, at Auburn University. <laughs> called ZS. Called, the Z- yeah, Zeta Sigma. And uh, she goes to parties all over Alabama, in Atlanta, All over the South, really, she is hot shit. She has got that boom, boom, pow, and it is said about her, when Zelda Sarah came to dances, the Birmingham girls just went on home. Do you know if she ever met Margaret Mitchell? I I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they They actually ever encountered each other. Probably ran in the same circles, it sounds like. There was a lot of the same overlap, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. I'll Patreon you. (laughs) So, her rep in Montgomery, she's kind of wild. She dives in a nude color bathing suit and, like, sets the town on fire oh my God, with a scandal. Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised they even sold those at the time. Well, um, uh, Kellerman, there's a really famous s- swimmer who, anyway, not the point. Okay. Okay. This, but, yeah, but she she liked to toe up to that line. Oh, and- she, she smokes, she drinks, she knows how to have fun, she flaunts convention. She's got brains and creativity and beauty and this rebelliousness. And she's a Leo, so she's got the heart of an actress, and welcome to Scott's new golden girl obsession. Right. 
Mm. He has a Brooks Brothers uniform. He's super handsome. They look like twins. They have this spring full of love. They exchange gifts. He writes to her like she's his princess in the tower and hails her up on this weird Ginevra throne that has been missing. And she now becomes the focus. He starts riding the side of paradise. He's waiting to be shipped off, but fuck, the war ends. So he doesn't get to go to war and he's super mad. Wow. Wait. So 1918, he's in Montgomery for basic. There, he gets shipped back out to like Kansas City to wait to go off to and they're, war. And they're sending letters. Also, somehow he missed the flu, yeah. which started in the U.S. at a military base. Influenza would have been a kinder fate for him. <laughs> Okay. All um, right. So, so wow, he just dodged a bunch of bullets there. Yeah, somehow. right. Okay. Literally no combat. He's mad. And he yeah. proposes to Zelda. And she's like, ah. he moves to New York to get a job. He works at an ad agency and is during this time, he's rejected twice by Scribner's. He hates the ad agency. He's riding this side of paradise at night. Okay. Zelda says, yeah, sure. To his engagement. But I have like four other fiancés and pins from all kinds of frat boys and servicemen that dip the wings of their planes over my house on the daily. Oh my God. I mean, talk about charm and charisma. <laughs> she has a shit ton of bow. She ends up pulling a switch on letters like L. Ron Hubbard's wife, but to two different dudes. So she's returning a pin. Like she sends Scott a letter with, uh. Uh, it's, uh, okay. Baby's playing games. Yes. But he's like, what the fuck? He just works harder. And she's like, eh, you're making $35 a week. And I'm not sure if you heard what uh, kind of big deal I am here in Dixie. And it's super clear to me that maybe I can do better. So in June 1919, she breaks off the engagement. He is devastated. Yeah. He heads to St. Paul. He lives with his parents. He writes for 16 hours a day to finish the side of paradise. He borrows money for smokes and supplies This is a novel loosely constructed about his college days, and it's the voice of a new generation, which is rapidly changing. Flappers and philosophers. Right, right. Like, these kids, I I guess, are a lot like many of the generations to follow. They've got hopes and fears of a post-war generation, no faith in their fellow man, and have you heard of the 1920s? Yeah, I mean, right, the jazz age was on I guess people didn't realize the jazz age was happening until after the jazz age was over. <laughs> well, I'm not Scott sure. Fitzgerald was writing it. Like yeah. he was the writer. He invented the term. He is the Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like he is the writer of the jazz age, but he kind of gets stuck in that. So when he evolves as a writer, like Great Gatsby was really curious when it came out because he's grow like we'll talk about it. Like he okay. grows up as a writer, but yeah. And I I want to say I I could be wrong, but I think Gatsby's the only book of his that I've read. I have not read uh, his first book. Um, guess what? Hmm. I am telling you the story cool. that you'll be able to actually save yourself reading all those other <laughs> books because he still Zelda's life fucking material. Okay. So he gets this side of paradise gets accepted by Scribner's. It's released on March 26th, 1920. Sells out on the first day. Wow. It's risque. It exposes the young people of the day, their flappers and kissing and petting parties. It's a novel of a new generation, first about Ginevra manifesting into Zelda. He knows the release is coming ahead of time. He reproposes to Zelda. 
At 23, he is an instant celebrity, and he arranges for their marriage on April the 3rd at St. Patrick's Cathedral, two weeks after the book is published. She says yes. She takes a train in her weird Alabama clothes that she thinks are pretty cool. She arrives. They marry in the rectory. They can't marry in the church because she's not Catholic. Hmm. Okay. The wedding is supposed to start at 11. One of his friends is there, and her sisters are all arriving to come to the wedding. Right. F. Scott tells the priest to start the ceremony before the rest of, like, the eight guests that are going to be there arrive. Control. This is the... (sighs) He insists on starting the ceremony. They do get there, and they are pissed. Uh, Yeah, I would... Think. This is the, this is, um yeah, they're, they're mad. Rosalind, there's no after party. Scott and Zelda go to the fucking Biltmore and party all night. So here the rest of their wedding, like Rosalind takes everyone out to lunch because it's just awkward turtle. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Her seat is planted for fuck off Scott. She's done. He is so embarrassed by the way that Zelda looks. Because in of her, her weird Alabama in clothes. her weird Alabama clothes, that he has a friend take her shopping the next day so she can look smart. She gets some new duds, and she really takes on because they're they're in New York City now. They're right? in New York like, City, okay. and then like it in, is in the, in the jazz age. In the jazz age, okay. She gets new duds, and she kind of accepts this new role in the script that Scott's handed her. It's extravagance. She is the queen of the flappers. He's the king of the jazz age. They are legendary in New York City. They dance on tables at the Waldorf. They ride on top of taxi cabs down Fifth Avenue on Sunday night. Because who does fuck all on a Sunday night? Seriously. I don't ride down. Ta- what? Sunday night. It's Disney in bed. <sighs> they are riding drunk like a fucking teen wolf on taxis Sunday night. It's ridiculous. They dance in the Washington Square Fountain. And thanks Counting Crows because I think of Zelda. When Washington Square comes on by the Counting Crows every time. Okay. They're doing hotel, like cartwheels and hotel lobbies, living it up in New York. Every day is more outrageous than the day that came before it. They are both performers. Fire and air sign, right? Actors. They write the script. They play the role. They look and dress the part. They decide the characters they're going to play on any given day. And that's what they do. Okay. Living high and large. No party at the time is complete without them. They are the hit of the New York scene, and they're drinking a lot. They're collaborators right now. They're inseparable. He trusts her with everything, and she him. This is his golden girl dream come true. They're on top of their game. Save stitching in the outrageous use of alcohol and the rearing of Scott's control manifesto. And the countdown to the switch. And I've capitalized that in my notes. The switch. Capital S. Pin in that. So back to the party. Yeah. He's productive. Zelda ends up reviewing this side of paradise. Which she writes this really cheeky article. For like like a ladies magazine. Okay. Plagiarism begins at home. Because Scott in this side of paradise is quoted directly from her fucking letters. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So she, she writes an article called Plagiarism Begins at Home? No, she writes, an, she writes a review of this side of paradise. Right. For a ladies magazine. And in that article, she is quoted like, Piers Mr. Fitzgerald believes that plagiarism begins at home. Wow. So she's already kind of like, what, dude, you used all my fucking letters? Yeah. 
women's magazines, because of the strength of this piece, it's kind of cheeky. It's mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. fun. Like she doesn't cut him down right, directly. It's, it's but not it's, an attack. It's but got it's, a wink and a nod. Yeah. Women's magazines reach out and she begins writing pieces about flappers. Stories that are pretty solid. Hey, she's a free and independent woman or she thinks she is. Like, hey, I can earn some money too. But Scott has to control that as well. She starts writing, but he puts his name on a lot of it. Wow. Just because we can get more money that way. But he's stealing her fucking work. Right, right. And they're burning through money. And now he's stolen not only her letters, her words, but her life fucking material. Mm -hmm. So what solves everything? Have a baby. Oh, bad, bad idea. Uh, the drinking that was happening during pregnancy in that era and smoking, it's amazing that we are even alive. It's just amazing that like generations persisted. So in February of 1921, yeah, she finds out she's pregnant. Uh, she gives birth to her daughter, Scotty, mm-hmm. on October 26, 1921. Interesting name. It is an interesting name. Scotty. Scott decided upon it. Zelda wanted to call her Patricia and called her Pat pretty much her whole life. Really? Yep. She grew up with two names because control. Scott Mom was her... in control. But... Well, she's Francis Scott Fitzgerald, but not Francis with an I-S, Francis with an E-S. And Fran- was Franny. called Scotty. Scotty. Goddamn. <laughs> While Zelda's giving birth to Scotty, mm-hmm. she is drugged up. Talking to Scott, ah, oh, goofo. I hope she's beautiful and a fool. That's the best thing a girl can like. She is spaced out, right? Like kitten on drugs, spaced out. What does he do? Takes out a fucking notepad and writes it down, and it's used in his next novel. Oh, Jesus. Word for word. Wow, wow. <sighs> they move a lot. <laughs> Write what you know. <laughs> They live in places like a year at a time. Scott keeps churning out work. Saturday Evening Post, Red Book Esquire. This is easy money. Mm -hmm. These magazine articles are playing in his wheelhouse. He's writing about flappers and the jazz age, but he's also stealing Zelda's work and giving it his or his byline or their collective byline or whatever. Yeah. But it does take time away from writing novels, but he gets it done and finishes The Beautiful and Damned. And this novel charts the demise of a happy couple who self-destruct because of the drinking. Okay. He's writing this, but he's really wanting to write the great American novel. Okay. Okay. (laughs) They're spending too much money. They're drinking way too much. They moved to Great Neck, Long Island in 1922, which is like 30 minutes on a drunken fast ride to Manhattan. Right. And this is the fictional setting of... Gatsby, right? This is where they are inspired. This is West Egg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, At this time, Great Neck is mostly a place of like parks and mansions. It's pretty upper crust. They rent the smallest house on the best block. (laughs) You can see Manhattan across the water. Like I looked it up on Google. It's about 23 miles away, 47 minutes now by car. They proceed to, it's Prohibition. Drunken party. I was going to ask how Prohibition, because I know at some oh. point they moved to Paris, right? Uh, and I was wondering if they it's left. It's coming. Yeah, I was wondering if Prohibition pushed them to France. Uh, it pushed everyone to France. Yeah. yeah okay. We can drink a lot there on the cheap and stay warm in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great Neck is loaded with celebrities, actors, actresses, writers. Everybody famous is there because it is a Prohibition party town. 
Her parents come to visit. They're horrified. I bet. They I... have drunk people mm-hmm. like, sleeping it off on couches. Zelda turns up with a black eye. Oh. Oh, I, I hit the door. Control <sighs> and abuse. So this is, I mean, the family hates him after the wedding. They hate him more now. In the spring of 19, like 1924, early 1924, they're like, we got a GTFO. We got, we got to get out of here. Right, so they right. head off to Europe with 17 suitcases and $7,000. Like, let me just, I'm not going to do the financials on it, but Scott burns through money like nobody's business. He is continually in the mid 20s to mid 40s for salary. Like, they're years, I made $42,000 this year in the 1920s. Which was a lot of money, right? More than half, like, insane amount, and burning through it. Okay. Uh, So in the spring of 1924, they land in the French Riviera. It's a glittering crowd, expats, escaping prohibition. The dollar is super strong. They end up meeting Gerald and Sarah Murphy, who know everyone. They're hanging out with Picasso, Cole Porter, like... Uh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm giggling because what a world. Oh my God, what? He has brought her in to be his accessory on a, a world stage that would be unparalleled to think of for a girl from Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah, without a doubt. But she's not doing it on her own terms. She's doing it on his terms. Right. With his script. Right. So most of Zelda's time is actually spent apologizing for him and his drunken behavior. Oh, cool. He smashes precious crystal, like, of the Murphys. And they're like, yeah, you're not invited back. Like, you don't come over anymore. So most of her her correspondence is, please forgive us for, I mean, but their drunken revelry is pretty drunken. Sure. They get in this new social circle in the Riviera that year, 1924. And there's a big old bunch of handsome French aviators. So meet Yozan. He buzzes the house with his airplane like her previous Right, I was going to say. They swim together. Like, Scott's writing. Mm -hmm. He is paying not jack shit of attention to her. And depending on what narrative you read, I mean, there was definitely something happening. The whole set on the Riviera that year is like, Bucks up with Zelda and the aviator. Right, right. Everybody's paying attention, except for Scott, who's clueless. So Zelda asks him for a divorce. And Scott is pissed. And he's so pissed, he locks her in a room for like a month. What? He cheats on her plenty, but she's not allowed to cheat. Well, that seems like standard for most of Like, all of a sudden, Zelda's not on the beach. Nobody sees Zelda for a month. Wow. Yeah. See, that's a true crime podcast right there. (laughs) She overdoses on pills a few weeks later. Whoa. And here, pull the pen out of the switch, capital S. Uh-huh. Zelda wants a new role. She wants a new script. Mm-hmm. She is now resentful, uncertain, and what I think, baby of the Southern Belle emotionally abused spouse turns passive aggressive, and which is never where you want to get a Belle of this type of caliber. I think at this point, she realizes what her fate is going to be. She is going to be writing handwritten letters of apology for Scott's behavior. And she accepts her fate in her own little Leo way because that's all she's equipped to do. And she's going to say, fuck off, Scott. You want to see the game? 
I'll show you the game. I'll show you the game. And the game <laughs> will change as she gets more and more desperate to escape her fate as the princess in the tower. But now she's going to go ahead and start turning her attention elsewhere. Fuck off Scott is broken by this. He mistreats her for the rest of time. And you locked her, you locked her in a room for a month. And she was probably pretty tired of writing apology notes for you. October 1924, Great Gatsby. Sent across the pond. They're trying to patch it up. Aviator's gone. Zelda draws pictures of his characters. Like, Great Gatsby's directly stealing this entire story. Rich girls don't marry poor boy. Like, it, But the Oracle of the Jazz Age grows up. Flapper Mystique is over. He's changed. His story changes. He is writing their life now. And he's reinvented again. His audience is gone. They want flappers and fun and jazz, not this scene with affairs and murder and, you know. Mm -hmm. So the book does not sell well during his life. It now sells about 300,000 copies a year, been made into five films. It's required high school reading. He found his fame, just not in his lifetime. Yeah, it's good yeah. reviews, but disappointing sales. Okay. Spring of 1925. They're in Paris. <sighs> He's hanging out with everyone. Meets Ernest Hemingway. It's a Patreon episode. <laughs> Ernest and Zelda hate each other. Oh, interesting. Oh, oh, oh. Like, I can't even. This episode's already going to be long enough. He's sucking up to the rich. Zelda doesn't ever suck up to anybody. She's Alabama royalty, and nobody in Alabama had any money anyway. Like, it that wasn't, money wasn't the thing. It was your name. It was something very different. In Paris, they're chilling with Gertrude Stein, Picasso, Miro, Matisse, Juan Gris, Archibald McLeish, the Murphys still. Zelda begins to paint in 1925, and this is the first place where she's going to focus her attention on something else, not right, her right. asshole husband. Right, get her own thing. She starts painting. She paints until the day of her death. Art is her solace. Okay. The second thing that she does is writing. Her most productive periods of writing are from 1929 to 1934, mainly in institutions, and from 1940 to 1948 after his death. She also, during this time period, rediscovers her love for ballet and begins daily training. Gets skilled enough to be offered a soloist role in an Italian ballet company. Jesus. That Scott is like, no way you're not going to do that. No wife of mine will ever work. But I'm going to complain about how much. But the switch has happened. <laughs> and her focus is elsewhere and she's going to be obsessive. And so she is. She throws herself into, not Scott, but this 100% refocus of her attention spent elsewhere. Quick interlude. This is going to come back. They end up going back to the States. Scott makes his first attempt at a Hollywood writing career in 1927. He meets a 17-year-old actress named Lois Moran at a lunch given for the Fitzgeralds at the home of Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. Scott is head over heels. She's an actress, and she's so brave and courageous, and wow, she is making a name for herself and money. And he visits her in the company of her mother, and Zelda's pissed. Like, you've given me crap for years about your struggle to support me, and this is what you go for? 
She burns all of her clothes in the bathtub. And on the way back from Hollywood on the train, because, of course, he's not successful in his screenwriting career because he Mm. fights with Constant Talmadge, the actress for the film. Great. Scott tells Zelda, oh, by the way, I invited Lois to come on up and see us in Delaware. I mean, really. (laughs) They end up back in Europe. She finds a new set of friends in the lesbian art set. It that's roaming around Paris at the time. Sure. So Romain Brooks and Natalie Barnet and Juana Barnes. These are progressive women who appreciate and support women and art and well, ladies. They're softer and more accepting and well, not fuck off Scott. Sure. So Scott doesn't really like this either, and he talks a lot in the future, especially when she's institutionalized about her lesbian tendencies, which do pop and kind of manifest from this point on. But they're both worried about his sexuality because there's all kinds of rumors going on about. I mean, they're in the Verison. Anyway. But again, it's like whatever he does, he's going to rail against someone for because his behavior is exactly that to you. Right. So there's a lot of projection or, or whatever going on. That... Gotcha. Projection is a good word. It's very apropos to 2019. <laughs> all right. So... Yeah, he can't control her. This leads to the first hospitalization. Her what? mental state deteriorates. She's obsessed. So, okay, I was going to ask, like, these, these hospitalizations, were they actually sort of necessary? <sighs> She's obsessed. Southern Belle on a passive-aggressive streak can be seen as irrational behavior. But I don't think that she is a schizophrenic which is what she was originally diagnosed with. I don't think she's a schizoid personality. Okay. Schizoid was applied to a lot of women in that day and age who were not fitting into the baskets their husbands wanted to put them in. Sure. Sure. In every institution he puts her into, he thinks he's just as qualified as the doctors. Perfect. And he wants to run her treatment. Perfect. She is already at a disadvantage in another country as she is Southern. And has a very distinctive style of speech and like that southern wordplay that happens in weird phrasing. And she's in Europe and they're like, we think you're a lunatic just because of the way you talk. Uh, She is seen in Europe as aloof and distant, which is a really distinct difference from anyone else from Montgomery who knows her. They call her warm and loyal. She shows grace under pressure. She is intensely kind. She does get a handful of doctors through all the crappy ones in all of her years of treatment that are like, yeah, your husband is an alcoholic, and we see that it could improve your marriage and communication with him if he quit drinking. And they approach Scott, and uh, what does Scott do? As soon as that idea happens, yanks her out of a place and puts her in a new one. Oh, Jesus. Yep. Oh, Jesus. He doesn't want to deal with her. If you're tired of looking at my face, I guess I already am. I mean, is she, I realize at the time divorce was difficult, but Margaret Mitchell did it. Why didn't she just leave him? It wasn't what she did. But he doesn't want to deal with her. It would cramp his style. He wants to complain all the time, control about how much he costs and all the problems. Then he has to slave to keep her supported. And she's like, dude, I'm a painter. I'm a dancer. I'm a writer. I can make money, you arrogant asshole. Get me out of this fancy summer camp where I can do some good. And he's like, 
nah. So there are transcripts of them. There's one that's just especially harrowing that break it all down with a therapist. They're in for like 13 hours and it's all right. And she's just like fucking divorce. Let me go. Zelda never gets out. But at some point she's allowed to have a piece of paper to write on and a pen. So small victories. There's my favorite story about Zelda Fitzgerald. In 1932, she cranks out in four weeks what is her first novel, oh. Save Me the Waltz. Oh, cool. This novel uses all of her life material. Mm-hmm. Her home, her growing up, her time. I mean, it's it's everything, as well as her hospitalizations. And Scott's mad. He doesn't know she's doing this. She submits her four weeks of work in a fully finished novel to his editor. Scott doesn't know. Oh, wow. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> And uh, he's pissed. He's furious. When he finds out. He rips it up. He edits all of it. Now, keep in mind, it is right now still two years away, and it will take him a total of nine years to write Tender is the Night, which they both share the same material for. He's not mad she wrote it. Well, he is, because she just stole all of his material, which is her fucking life and hospitalization. Fuck off, Scott. (laughs) 1934, Tenders the Night's released. Like, at this time, had he released it five years before, it might have been kind of apropos. But by this time, it's outdated. It's Depression era. Novel kind of fails. He's devastated. Here's our two quarts of gin at breakfast. Um, mm. Let's, I mean, life's ended for him. He and Zelda crashed. In 1936, he writes a three-part piece in Esquire called The Crack Up which literally, like, breaks his reputation. Let's not hold him up to be an exemplary father either. It's a hard thing oh, to that's do right. when you're They've drunk. Had they have a child! Scotty, yeah, and so she's institutionalized. And you committed and your wife. He's drunk, and Scotty is just hanging out with them in Europe. And So Scotty has nanny. She goes to boarding schools. She stays for a time with not only her grandparents, but his parents as well, as well as Harold Ober. Fitzgerald's business manager and his wife, Anne. They substitute as her parents in many ways through the years of Scotty's life. But Scott still will write her really harsh letters. Oh, God. Admonishment and shame, like the ones he was writing to his sister. sister, yeah. Now, if you look at a picture of Scotty, she is mini Zelda. Like, I can, like, they look so similar. Anyway, Zelda's still in North Carolina, doped, electrocuted. Sure. Let's get to the end of Scott. I'm done with this guy. Okay. So in September of 1936, the New York Evening Post uh, writes an article which calls him a failed writer, sodden, despairing alcoholic, famous drunk. He's washed up, mm. out of fashion. But he ends up making his third return to Hollywood to try to make it as a screenwriter. screenwriter. He's sober. He's in L.A. Like, it's probably not going to go that great. Wait, but he got sober. Yeah, he did get sober. After this article comes out, he's like, I am a washed up drunk. I should probably get sober. Okay. So he returns sober to L.A. He is staying at the Garden of Allah, which will will be a whole upcoming Patreon episode because it's just awesome. It's filled with this mix of famous and seedy. The walls are really thin. So it's a good place for material, but a bad place for an alcoholic to be. He is working hard. He's pushing himself to stay sober. He is trying to write himself a new role, a new script, a new character. Sure. He has assigned Zelda a new role. Let's get him one, too. He wants to be a Hollywood screenwriter. 
da da da, cue sexy music, in walks Sheila Graham. She's an English rose, fresh off a divorce, part of a syndicated trio of gossip columnists, including Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. She looks a lot like Zelda before Scott broke her, and within a few weeks, they're a thing. Like Sheila's having dinner with Scott and Scotty telling Scotty to eat her peas. Hmm. It's weird. Like, there's nothing and, good. And Zelda's in a mental institution? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. D- fighting for her life and to try to keep her sanity in a... You're tired of looking at my face, I guess. I already am. So mad about it. So, they start an affair. He has no intention of divorcing Zelda. She Sheila was engaged when they These people are met. terrible. Like, really... Um, she doesn't, Sheila Graham doesn't think of herself as his mistress. She thinks of him as the woman that will love him until the end of time. She thinks it's very noble. She ends up later admitting to Scott that she's a total phony too. Her accent's phony. She put on a roll and assumed it, but they are two peas in a pod. He works on a yank at Oxford with no screen credit. Three comrades he works on. It's his first and only one. MGM gives him a raise. He writes Infidelity for Joan Crawford, which is never made because what happens at that time is censorship starts to crack down. Mm, Okay. He gets a house on the beach with cheaper rent. He's really disappointed because he's failed again. And what does he do? Falls off the wagon. Okay. Gin and juice, baby. Um, (laughs) He's loaned to Selznick for Gone with the Wind, but he's only able to use dialogue from the novel. They cut him off on any original screenwriting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He's replaced after two weeks. Wow. Okay. So and there's a little Margaret Mitchell tie in there. There, there really is. Um, he is an uncredited screenwriter. I've gone with the wind using only the text yeah, from the novel. Yeah, using Margaret but... Mitchell's writing. Yeah. Okay. okay. So he just reverts to drinking gin all day, but Sheila doesn't drink. She's met him sober. She is seeing a... Whole new side. Whole of- new world. Total change in his personality. They have terrible fights. The final binge begins in April 1939. He begins blocking for The Last Tycoon, his last novel, a thinly disguised tale about Irving Thalberg, who was this boy wonder producer who died in 1936, married to Norma Shearer. He's writing. He feels alive again, but he's only got like 7,000 pages and it's not long enough to do anything with. So it's he's spiraling down. December 1st, 1939, he assaults his nurse, who's been hired to monitor and watch his drinking. Oh, God. Pulls a gun on Sheila. She calls the police and leaves him to die. Yeah. She's done. Oh, good good call. I mean, if only Zelda had made the call. No, but then what does he do? Begs her to come back like all abusive people do, and they reunite, and she's going to be with him. They go to Mexico. He stays sober. They don't get married in Tijuana, do they? (laughs) No, they do not get married in Tijuana. (laughs) He continues to write. He suffers a mild heart attack in November of 1940 and moves to Sheila's. Because they're together three and a half years. Mm -hmm. uh, Zelda's still locked up. Yeah. While recuperating at Sheila's, he suffers a massive heart attack December 21st, 1940. He's 44. Okay. Just kill him? Yeah. Okay. Zelda's too ill to attend. It's attended by very few people. Sheila Graham, all later, she is a writer, wrote a book of her years spent with Fitzgerald called Beloved Infidel, which was later adapted as a movie. Zelda, in mm-hmm. 1940, when Scott dies, spends the next year, eight years, in and out of hospitals. And she kind of flourishes as much as she can. She is certainly damaged. Uh, again, the 
treatment was worse than the illness. Right, right. But she paints daily. Her daughter gets married. She has a granddaughter. She ends up exhibiting like four times in Montgomery. Her paintings here are dreamy watercolors or religious in theme. She really does adopt a religious zeal later in life. She writes her second novel, Caesar's Things. She meets a very terrible and sad end at the age of 48, where she perishes on the top floor of the institution she is in, along with eight other women. And she is identified by her dental records in a half in a fire slipper right the the institution caught fire the institution catches fire there's a little controversy like was it arson from an employee like but not the point of the story she's identified by her dental records and her half burnt slipper and she is buried beside scott in rockville maryland so that's the story of scott and zelda fitzgerald they should should have gotten divorced they should uninter her body or whatever that term is and bury her in Montgomery. I mean, she's ashes. Like she burned. Oh, yeah. Okay. A whole lot. So. Well, <sighs> uplifting. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's the saddest story. It's not. Story. It's terrible. Like, it is. Like, when is divorce a better thing? Like, don't. Just. <sighs> no. That, yeah, that was, that was terrible. Um. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks. <laughs> to try to find something good. Like it would have going back to the original point, like it would have been kinder to divorce her and go and live. It's that manifestation of control. And he's a, like, the name of my story is my, you know, Angel from Montgomery or subtitled fuck off. Scott Fitzgerald, you are an alcoholic misogynist and I don't like you very much. Yeah. I mean. Anyway. Fight with her listeners via email. Change my mind. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. That kind of brought you down. You've got a better story to tell. Let's I've, take a... I've got a story about a house. I. It's the. It's such a good story. I mean, I, I kind of like this. We will, Podcast no rules. We will obviously go back to a, a more traditional format for the pod starting in two weeks. But yeah, I kind of like... I had fun writing this one. Podcast no rules. Cool. I love it. Let's take a break. My vision enhancers are off. You removed, pressure off me. You removed your vision enhancers so you can't see my awesome hair anymore. I mean, your hair is pretty good. It's pretty solid. Hey. I rolled out of bed like this. <laughs> what have you got for me this week? Home is so, where the divorce is? You know, a little bit. So there's a TV show on HBO called High Maintenance that's about a pot dealer yeah. in New York City who rides his bike around, delivers and he pot. intersects with all different kinds mm-hmm. of... Yeah. I found a house that is like... That for us, for this podcast, it is like the, the trashy divorces like house. The guy of trashy divorces, sorta. That is that's, amazing. That's the pod dealer. This name. really is podcast no rules. I can't wait to see where this. Yeah. Is so go. so I wrote yeah I wrote a divorce story about a house. All right. So one of my many gigs as a freelance copywriter uh, has been writing web copy for law firms. Sure. It's been for divorce like, Wednesday for as long as we've known yeah, each other for like seven or eight years. Yeah. And like yeah, like three four years ago. My law blog guy, because I have a law blog guy, asked me to start writing longish divorce pieces. Sure. He said from the society pages, I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's even a thing anymore. Who did you turn to? Page for? six, the New York Post, and to a lesser extent, the New York Daily News. Well, and also me. 
Well, you told me to. You told me that's where I should look. That's exactly right. Um, <laughs> boy, howdy, have I learned some trash. Learned some so we're going to get into this particular divorce that I'm going to use to frame this story in a later episode, I'm pretty sure, because okay. it's, it's, it's trashy, it's okay. big money, it's famous. Well, they're, they're so rich they're not famous. Yeah. They're famous in their circle, but whatever. Uh, it's the Mugrabi, David Mugrabi art collector Ooh. family. Uh, his family owns the largest private collection of Warhols in the really? world. Really? They Mugrabi all the art? Yeah. So he filed Keep your Mugrabi hands off my Warhols. Uh, he filed Sorry. for divorce from his wife Libby last July, okay. twenty eighteen. She had caught him skinny dipping with another woman at a that party. That was not his wife at their estate in the Hamptons. Oh. However, oh. it turned out, like later reporting, was that this it was a group of people. It was like a July Fourth weekend getaway at their it was Hamptons a petty house party. Well, and. Nothing's. It wasn't sexual. It was just a bunch of like half drunk, rich Adults. middle-aged people who were like, "Ah, eh, let's take off our we clothes." We have skinny dips since we were sixteen. Yeah. So okay. anyway, but clearly there were problems. So they are not a good look. They are in court less than a month later. Okay. But what got my attention in this story is that one of the things they're fighting over is a townhouse in Manhattan. Okay. That is valued somehow at seventy-two million dollars, which what? just Seems unreasonable that is some to me real as a housing price. So I kind of started looking into it and felt I just love this story. So I hope you do as tell well. Tell me, tell me. 72 mil? $72 million. Is, um, it a, is it a mansion? It's made of gold. No, it's, it's, it's not it, made uh, of gold. So this is a townhouse and the address is 12 East 82nd Street, which okay. is a good neighborhood. And this townhouse... For our purposes of trashy divorces, is is the guy, the pot dealer in high maintenance, because okay. the intersections here are really cool. So it was built in 1905. It is a five-story brick federal with high ceilings, a marble facade, limestone trim. Oh, it sounds beautiful. Ornate entrances. Sure. Wow. I mean, but is it any more beautiful than? I just every other seventy-two million dollars. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know the owners all the way back to the beginning. I'm sure they're fascinating. <laughs> But in 1978, it was purchased by an advertising executive who paid $450,000 for it. That's a high percentage turnaround. Yeah. His name was Fred Levinson, and he would go on to create Ronald Reagan's almost impossibly famous 1984 re-election campaign commercial, Morning in America. Uh, This guy... I have this guy to thank. I am tapping my my forehead because he's a smart cookie, clearly. So he, you know, very successful ad guy, basically. 99, the place is too big for him. So, like, he sells it to a prominent New Yorker who's just out of a divorce. Do you want to guess who? He's, who he's, in, looking, who in, he's looking for real estate in a burned... Ooh, ooh, who, ooh. who in 99 was trying to get away from a home where the staff had been instructed not to fill the fruit bowls? Jocelyn Wildenstein. Jocelyn Wildenstein buys it. Listeners, this is episode nine. Some, yeah, the uh, man who prints money in the art world, whatever. Yes. yes. Uh, Jocelyn Wildenstein. She pays $8 million for it. So nice turnaround. Wow. Okay. But also she's Levinson made, his made cash. of money because she 3. just got a billion, yeah. three, $3 billion. Yeah. Real, yeah. Divorce Done. settlement. Like, I so can buy an $8 million property without even blinking. Possible she overpaid for it even because she could. 
because she's not very clued into what things cost. <laughs> so, I mean, the servants refused to fill my fruit bowl. I gotta get out of it. Well, she didn't know how to work the oven anyway. Uh, so starving. This was apparently the first real estate she purchased after divorcing Alec, but she bought like she bought several like Trump World Tower oh, okay. um, apartments. There, she's always had a lot of real estate, which is smart if you're in a That's high value. Tends to be a good thing to put your money into. So she had some really big ideas though for how she Ooh. was gonna use the place. Okay, uh, she started a renovation that would have turned the first floor into a hydrotherapy spa, complete with a pool. Oh, really? For a mere $4 million. Oh, my God. It's estimated. Are, I, are we about to find out where she spent her $3.8 billion? No, because it, it, it seems like that was the estimate of the reno was four. So in total, what would that be? Eight and four. So $12 million. So no, we don't know where her $3.8 billion went. It, it didn't, it didn't go It didn't go into this house. Okay. Put it that okay, way. fair enough. I'm not sure whether the reno was completed. But for whatever reason, in 2006, she sold it. Okay. And she sold it to a fascinating person, another prominent, well-known New Yorker, not New Yorker, because she's Swiss, right, by birth? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a real estate developer named Jana Bullock, who we are going to talk about because she is really fascinating. So she sells it, yes, to this like high-end flipper of real estate and developer of real okay. estate. She comes up in my work from time to time because she works with the ultra, ultra rich. Jana Bullock? Jana Bullock. Okay. It is an extremely lucrative, like, yeah, New York tiny State is, yeah. niche in Hamptons. She apparently lives in a $30 million Hamptons mansion. Wow. She is a Russian emigre oh. who arrived in New York in the early 1990s. As the a 20- last name of Bullock? It's... Interesting. Uh, you're, you're, this you're, story you're is, putting your finger up, like put a pin in that. This story has everything. Everything. Go. She worked odd jobs as a nanny. She worked in a grocery store. She landed a job as a paralegal for an immigration lawyer who helped her get her citizenship. Convenient. Handy. She says she then got an MBA from Duke. She'd been a very successful student at university in, I guess at the time, the Soviet Union. Okay. And then she taught literature there before getting the hell out. Hmm. She had been married once, had a kid. Okay. The kid eventually joined her. Anyway, gets her MBA, I guess. These are things she says about herself. It's hard to quite know what is real. Interesting. And then we get into what I can only think of as squirrely circumstances, maybe fishy circumstances. And it perhaps would behoove us not to delve too deeply into them unless we be sworn officers of the law in some capacity, just saying. What did you find? Sometime around 95 or 96, she married a fella named, fascinating name here, Alexei Allegedly Bullock, a Russian financier living in Manhattan. Also around this time, she somehow picks up $100,000 of venture capital money to build like a shopping center outside of Moscow. What? You tell me. Uh, this story hasn't even gone off the rails yet. Because I don't know, like this last name thing. That guy's last name was not Bullock. I don't know where they found the name Bullock. That guy's last name was Kuznetsov. And he was the finance minister of the Moscow region in what? Russia from 2000 to 2008. What? In 08, he abruptly left the country 
because he allegedly stole hundreds of millions of dollars from Russian taxpayers and caused a partial default on the debt in the Moscow region. He's a Russian oligarch. Ish. Probably not quite. I don't know. So the... Okay, this is such a weird story to have been researching because um, there is a Russian opposition leader, to uh, opposition to Putin, right. named Alexei Navalny, who I've heard of in other capacities, and he he's like written this case up on his on his public blog, okay, because it's he calls it just total bullshit that the idea that this guy was stealing all this money without without Russian oligarchs being oh. in on it with him. No, it's ma- it's mafioso. It's yeah. mafioso. Anyway, so ultimately, like the Russian government insists that Alexei not Bullock um, did this, and that his wife Jana helped. Oh my god! They are ultimately charged with embezzling like 194 million dollars. <gasps> what? Jana was tried in absentia in 2018 and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Although the U.S. government has taken no steps to extradite her to Russia for this. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. What? Uh, I I don't, like, seriously. Okay. I have so many conflicting thoughts in my head. Incidentally, Jana and Alexi divorced at some point after 08. They have a daughter together. Okay. I don't know what year they divorced. Good luck nailing down particulars with these people. Alexi was extradited to Russia by France in January of this year. Oh. Because I presume he was tried and found guilty, too. He actually, he will stand trial for fraud, money laundering, misuse of public funds, probably other charges. So it sounds like he's going back for the bad reasons not to return home into the fold of the mafia. He's been, yeah, they, he was put on the, the Russians put him on the Interpol watch list in 2013. Okay. And so the French arrested him and held him for four or five years in prison while he fought extradition. Sure. I'm not sure what. Yeah, that's. I'm bad. not sure what happened or changed, but like he was released from prison. Like the daughter went to visit him when he was released from prison. I guess in 2018, maybe. Okay. He's he, but he's been fighting. They finally decided to just extra. I don't know why. Wow. Okay. Hello, Jana Bullock. Pretty sure we're gonna see you again here at Trashy Divorces because she really did, like in, at the high end real estate market in New York. She comes up a lot. Do. She's got her toes in a lot of stuff. And did we ever find the hundred and ninety-four million? She owns hotels in Europe. Or was that she just laundered all the way through pretty, the world in real estate? I mean, I'm not gonna definitively accuse her of money laundering, but so come what on. I hear you saying is you're accusing. Jen- no, I'm teasing. God, I'm not- like anyway, I I I'm just saying she is a colorful person wow. who I encounter sometimes in my law blogging work. And I'm pretty sure she's going to come up again. So, hello, Jana Bullock. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. This is a story for you. So, she takes possession of 12 East 82nd Street. That was a tangent. Okay. She takes possession of this house in 06 and decided to un-reno Jocelyn's reno. Oh, God. Okay. By 2009, she had ripped the entire back of the townhouse off. What? She was going to redesign it or something. Then the economic downturn happened, and I think she just decided, like, I'm not going to put that money in anymore. Neighbors complained to city authorities about this, because, like, from the back, obviously it backs up onto a similar set of townhomes. Oh, my God. So 
neighbors from the back are looking. It is literally, we'll put a picture on the website. It's no what? five stories open through, <gasps> completely exposed to the elements, completely empty. Like no roof? Has a roof. But, but everything, but like no com- walls on the back. No, no walls on, no wall on the back wow. at all. The New York Times actually wrote about it in 2012. Uh, Elizabeth Harris is the author. She wrote, Several complaints were lodged about number 12 with the Department of Buildings in 2009 and 2010, including yeah, including such objections as house have no back and garden wall is missing as though it had wandered off to visit the museum and gotten lost somewhere in the American uh, wing. Has anybody seen my wall? It's <laughs> just gone. Wow. So neighbors were like planting big pl- like plants in pots to block the view like it was just oh my god and it sat there for years so eventually bullock was just like you know what like i'm this is a money pit for me yeah so she lists it at the end of 2012 with no back interest was overwhelming though apparently this type of townhouse there might be a little bit of work to do it's a fixer upper (laughs) yes so this type of townhouse was in short supply in the real estate market at the time, mm. so the ultra rich were like. So she lists it for fifteen, ups it to nineteen because so many people are sure clamoring. Wow, ends up selling it for fifteen. Okay, but you know, got to aim high. Well, yeah, and the listing included an all caps call out to be built out and is being sold in as is condition. <laughs> yeah, bet. <laughs> so this is how David and Libby Mugrabi became the owners. Of Trashy Divorces, the guy of Manhattan real estate. Okay. David's family had amassed this incredible fortune in the art world. The collection is valued in the $5 billion range. What? So they jump into a $57 million multi-year renovation. Obviously, the house needs a back, but I think uh-huh. after, like, I'm sure all the flooring had to be redone. I'm sure the wiring well, open was- open to the elements. Yes, yeah, for you're years. Done. Yeah, they have real winters in New York, and they have real summers in New York. Yeah, like- No, you- Tear it down to the studs and start over. It's, you yeah. build the house you want. It is landmarked, so oh, right. like the shell has to. I'm, I'm sure. Anyway, yeah. there are stricter rules governing sure. how you can do that. Again, Libby went to court in October to request a halt to the sale of the property. I'm not sure. I actually mentioned that at the start, but that was that was sort in of the what post follow up divorce. This, yeah, yeah, this is what sort okay. of got me started on this on this address. The judge said he couldn't do anything about whether David wanted to sell the place because the address, of course, is owned by an LLC rather than a person. Sure. So, obviously, if it doesn't belong to them, if an LLC owned by, exactly, owned by David and his family decides all by itself that it must sell this property. No, that's Alec Wildenstein. I only make $100,000 a year. I don't have anything. Everything's owned by the business. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's a dodge. Um, To end run this, her attorneys put together a separate lawsuit to deal with the issue. Okay. Her claim is that this big reno, the $57 million reno that took place over, I think, five years. Sure. Was paid for out of their personal accounts, not- Not through the LLC. LLC didn't kick in for it. And, you know, acting entirely of its own volition, now it wants to sell it. <laughs> Poor David. <laughs> anyway, she wants $57 million sure. when this LLC sells it. Yeah. She wants her $57 million, million cut back. back. I think what she really would like is that five years, but obviously you can't sure. can't get time. 
to my knowledge, that lawsuit continues and has not been ruled on yet. Wow. They're still squabbling. But let's talk about the guy. I'm air quoting. The guy, this house, okay. and his story. It's a little address that ties Reagan's ad man, Jocelyn Wildenstein, <laughs> a gifted and possibly criminal Russian entrepreneur who is now a U.S. citizen, by the way. Oh. Like, Woo. I guess I guess it's not correct to call her a Russian entrepreneur. She's an American entrepreneur. And some of the world's just most reputable players in the art world, you know, like. Wow. In just a few decades, it's transformed from a $450,000 home, which would be $1.8 million in today's dollars, into a $72 million townhouse. Unbelievable. And it's just not that, it just, it does not seem that exceptional. I'm not sure, I mean, I'm sure the reno that the Mugrabis did was. the back walls they rebuilt may have been made of gold? (sighs) You would, you would hope. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, that's, um. So that's that's just touching on the not yet completed Mugrabi divorce, and we'll wow. certainly have. You may want to do that because they really are gigantic Arty. players in the art world. Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. That was amazing. That's the trashy divorce of houses, man. Yeah. <laughs> Home is where the divorce is. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah what a weird. I I was just like, wait, what? Jocelyn and then yeah and the really the Jenna Bullock story the more you dig into that the more crazy you feel um there's a little shady there's some shady somewhere in there at least at a surface glance maybe we'll talk about it on my tinfoil hat conspiracy hour on patreon (laughs) that was amazing cool well this has been podcast no rules we've really twisted it up yeah all right so we are taking Next Sunday off, and we will be returning on March 29th. With it has been season two. Yeah, it's been a really fun season one. It really has. It's flown by. Thank you again to every listener. Thank you for your reactions and participation and your time and tuning into us and our trashy little podcast. Uh, you guys are awesome. Yep. You rock. Yeah, we've been having tons of fun, and we're looking forward to season two. Uh, season two is lit, and I may even end up talking Stacy into a little surprise in between our season breaks. But stay tuned on that for season two <laughs> of Trashy Divorces. Woo! Oh, it's so good. We're going to cut that sound I just made. It's so good. <laughs> All right. Well, until then, keep it trashy. Keep it trashy, y'all. Keep it classy, keep it trashy, and we'll see you March 29th. See you on the flip. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's sydneyvsmith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio.
You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.